This is Reverend Chuck Blair. Welcome to our weekly podcast on New Church Live. Wonderful to have you folks here. I hope you had an amazing, wonderful Christmas and and Christmas Eve and and all that. And uh, yeah, just what a great season. And thinking about, again, like we're talking about a decade coming to a close. Think about that. And think about where you were 10 years ago and where you are today. And then think with the sense of, I think what God intends, with the sense of hope or promise in terms of what the next years can bring. This is a launch to a series we have called Belonging. And the whole point of it is that belonging is super critical to understand. It really matters. We try to create a congregation that has this deep sense of belonging to it. Where when people arrive, they feel like, oh yeah, they were waiting for me. Belonging matters. Belonging different than fitting in. Fitting in is kind of like, here we are, and here's the world, and we're trying to figure out how to squeeze into a certain space. And and belonging means this, that we belong, that there's a part of our soul that gets to find breath in who that part actually is. It's the art of homecoming. The art of being who we were created to be. whole point of this series. It's important as we do this to just, just remember to, to take seriously, you know, this slide, to take seriously what Jesus took seriously. What did Jesus take seriously? Inclusion, nonviolence, kindness, compassionate acceptance, and please say the last one there, and forgiveness. Like, this is what he took really seriously. And you think of all the worries and concerns that we have and, and how these can kind of like, like become a bomb to so much of those. And the things that aren't part of this, I believe we're called to hold pretty lightly. Pretty darn lightly. And it invites the question, you know, invites this, and this is our hope. Our hope as part of this series is to be this. We want to be what the world is invited to become. And, and that doesn't mean like we want to be what the world out there that's all messed up wants to be become. It's, it's not that we have it, other people don't. There's, there's no such thing as that. It's, it's the global we. That all of our lives have challenges to them. No one in here gets it perfectly. No one. But we even want to embrace that imperfection so that we can become what the world's invited to become. And an invitation where, where that sense of belonging isn't based on doing it perfectly. It's based on this. Humanity. Shared humanity. That connectedness we all hold together. That's what we're invited to become. And there's incredible power there. And it matters. See, see, it matters because I think when we look at the antonyms in this next slide, we look at the antonyms. What did Jesus take seriously? We look at the antonyms. Well, if we don't believe in inclusion, exclusion is what we get. We don't believe in nonviolence, violence is what we get. We don't believe in kindness, we get cruelty. We don't believe in compassion, we get disdain and rejection. We don't believe in forgiveness, we get vengefulness. Those things in red are not terribly happy things. (laughs) And I feel like we're always called to shift from those words in red over to the words in right on on the left 
and white. And that's, that's really what the work of repentance is. Repentance meaning to rethink, to change our minds, to, to come at things in a new and different and brand new way. And one of the most powerful ways I know to do that as a pastor is for us to honor. Please listen to this. For us to come to truly honor each other's stories. Where we hear each other's stories and we hear each other's stories, yes, in the hard parts. Very candidly in the hard parts. And we also hear their stories in the blessed parts. In the parts where they found hope, the parts where they found a a part two, the parts where they found grace and love in brand new ways. And we are so fortunate today, so incredibly lucky to be able to hear a story from someone who we know and love as a singer here at New Church Live. And it was a story just beyond beautiful music. A story of love, a story of coming to understand What is love in its truest form? Now, Ashley told me before this, before she spoke, she's there, Chuck, I'm really nervous. I don't know how anybody who sings in front of people can be nervous, but I ask you to please warmly welcome her as she comes out to share her story with us here at New Church Live. Please welcome Ashley. All right, she's going to get set up here. You're, you're good. You're good, you're good, you're good. I gotta keep track. Oh, good. All right. All right. Ashley, let's take a breath together. It is great to have you here. There you go. All right. Hi, good morning. Yes. Big breaths for big feelings. That's gonna be, that's gonna be a theme, so. Okay, there are going to be, I think, some statistics on the, gr- the screen behind me soon, and I'm not going to read them all out loud because it just takes way too long. I'm going to go over about three or four from each section that I find really profound. Um, so let's get started. Our lives as children are what hardwires us for the attachment patterns that we seek and repeat. In 2017, the World Health Organization estimated that up to 1 billion minors between the ages of 2 and 17, because children under 2 typically can't tell anyone they're being abused, so (laughs) statistics are always skewed, have endured physical violence, either physical, emotional, or sexual. And in the United States, official government data reports that over 700 million children are victims of violence and abuse every year and one out of 10 experiences sexual abuse. One in four adults globally have experienced abuse before the age of 18. One in four, that's 25% of us that were willing to talk about it for the sake of gathering data. I know nobody talked to me about it who was gathering professional data. So even that statistic is still probably wildly inaccurate. It's almost as obscure as it is profound to talk about statistics because you hear a bunch of overwhelming and startling numbers and then you have to remember that it's literally impossible to obtain accurate data on these incidents because so many go unreported. And males, while in the minority, actually adult and minor both, are both twice as likely not to report than females. 
So you can't even trust the numbers. It's, it's an alarming problem. I speak about abuse experienced in childhood because it is these exact circumstances that shape us to grow into adults who may normalize, seek out, or tolerate abuse, or actually become abusers themselves. And it's important to talk about that because you can't talk about one without the other. According to the attachment theory, we all seek out both the good and the bad elements of our early childhood experiences. We are drawn to whatever is familiar. Multi-generational patterns of abuse are those which perpetuate the cycles of trauma that transcend down through the generations. And it's been until very recent history that we've even had a higher awareness for having a better standard of raising children in a respectful way and, and, and using conscious, conscientious parenting techniques. And it's just recently, like in the last several decades, that there's been much thought and consideration into how we raise our children. And those, from a global perspective, are the lucky few that get that kind of consideration. We are all flawed humans, and the principal point is holding ourselves accountable, holding others accountable, having genuine reflection, and then putting into action the work necessary to be the change and break those cycles and stop those patterns. And it is hard work that you have to have a lot of presence and awareness for, but future generations are counting on us to do better every chance we get. And we have three choices, survive, thrive, or succumb. Let's shift gears a bit and talk about domestic violence among adults and why so many victims don't tell a family member or a friend, don't report, don't leave. Maybe they leave and go back. We've all seen that. Last year, 137 women across the globe were killed every day by intimate partners. And the 2018 UN report says that over 50,000 women this year were murdered by their partners, concluding that the most dangerous place for a woman is in her home. <sighs> Big breaths. <sighs> Nearly 20 people per minute, per minute, are physically abused by an intimate partner in the United States. And during one year, this adds up to over 10 million men and women. These are adults in the United States. On a typical day, there are more than 20,000 phone calls placed to domestic violence hotlines nationwide. Yet, that's 20,000 a day. Yet, most cases of domestic violence are never reported to the police. It was only in 1920 that abusing your wife physically actually became officially illegal in America. 100 years ago. We are just removed by a century. So I want to talk about how that correlates to why people don't talk. Why people stay. People stay in abusive relationships for a variety of reasons. Fear probably being the most prevalent. Fear of others knowing. Fear of the unknown. What happens if I do leave? Fear of judgment. The fear of, of shame. The shame that you have to experience. Fear of the legal process. Fear of taking children from someone who they may still deem to at least be a good parent. Right? I even hedged on speaking at this service. Chuck mentioned I was nervous. I talked myself in and out of this, even though it was my idea, <laughs> more, more times than I can count over the last three months. 
And, you know, part of my hesitation was the fear that I would need to justify why I was ever in an abused relationship or, in my case, in more than one abusive relationships. Like, I would need to defend that. Now, as we all, like, gasp and clutch our pearls and shock and say, but you don't need to be ashamed. You have nothing to be ashamed of. It wasn't your fault. I want to explain and draw a metaphor real quick why why people feel that instinctively. This is a metaphor. I'm going to tie it all together. Any woman who has ever suffered a miscarriage knows that feeling that you just can't avoid of shame and responsibility, even though everybody who loves and supports you assures you it's not your fault. There was nothing you can do. You still feel it. You can't help it. You just feel it. You know, you grieve and you move past it. It goes away. But I read an article recently that was very interesting that was suggesting, based on studies, that the reason why women feel that is because for centuries, if not millennia, women were blamed for losing their babies. Even now, you know, we, it's, it's, it's still an issue <laughs> in many, many areas of the globe. And, because of that, but it, but in in later you know in earlier days it was even more extreme. I mean, we all know even aristocracy. Some some women were killed for losing their babies, and so this article is based on the idea that that shame and responsibility transcended down through time in these subtle subconscious triggers, and that that is actually why we feel it. For ages upon ages, a woman's bruises from her husband was not a signal for rescue and sympathy. They were wounds for her to bear in shame because everyone around knew she must have done something to deserve it. And I believe that that shame and trans and responsibility has also transcended through time. And that plays into a big part of why people feel shame when they've been abused. And that triggers this fear. We all fear shame. How many decisions do we make consciously or subconsciously to avoid shame? You know, whether we're looking at it as shame or we have to actually analyze it to realize it's shame. Like it's, it's so profound. So I want, I want to think about that and, and really tie that into why that matters so much. I'm going to label my personal testimonies as success stories. I, I was in two ugly, abusive relationships. Both of them were short-lived, but both of them were profoundly violent. And I was lucky. I was able to get out. Um, the first one, I was 18 years old. And I graduated high school, and I got into a relationship with a man who was 30. And at the time, I just thought that I was really hot stuff, that a 30-year-old was interested in someone. You know, I must be really mature. So that didn't end well, but he, you know, in the end, he, he left pretty quietly, which is rare. They usually keep coming back. The second one, the second one was a little harder to shake, um, and the situation was much more profound. And I'm not going to get very deep into that, but what I do want to say is what got me out in both situations was I told someone. This is my desperate plea. I want to pause and say, if you are being abused, try to summon your strength and tell somebody, one person. If you can bear it, tell one person. Because once you've told one person, even though the scary thing there is now you have accountability, you've told someone. So if you stay, you're going to get judged. That's a huge reason why people don't talk. So, but if you can, you know, find me on Facebook, message me. I'll be happy to help you. Contact New Church Live. Ask them for my contact info.
And if you suspect someone is being abused, cross lines and ask hard questions. Because even though they may not answer your hard questions, big breath, big feelings, the fact that you even asked could be what makes you be that one person that they tell. And even if they don't, stay vigilant and never, ever hesitate to call the cops. Because even if something isn't done, what that does to the abuser is lets them know now somebody knows there's a problem. And that is what helps sometimes to de-escalate the violence. You might save a life. Just, just look out for people. Don't ever feel like it's not your problem. It's all our problem because victims have a very difficult time reaching out and telling someone that they're being hurt. Earlier this fall, there was a video that went viral of Brant Jean, the brother of Botham Jean, who was the man who was shot in his own apartment by a female police officer down in Texas. And this viral video that I watched was the brother forgiving this woman who murdered his brother in the most beautiful display of mercy and grace and forgiveness I may have ever seen. It was, he was an 18-year-old man. It's a young man. And, and yet he possessed that grace. And when I saw that video, see, I've had a difficult time moving on from certain situations. I have a permanent wrist injury. And it flares up 10 years later. It still flares up. It hurts me really bad. Sometimes I can't hold a pot of water or hold my kids without pain. And it's really hard when that flares up not to get mad. I'll get back to that later. But so anyway, watching that video made me realize that I too needed to have the grace and forgiveness to forgive my abusers merely for the sake of moving on, just so I can move on. And, and we have to humanize our abusers. And as hard as that may seem, the first man who hit me was beat by his mother, badly, traumatized as a child. I'm not excusing him. I'm explaining him. The second man who hit me, his parents were heroin addicts. He watched his dad beat his mom. He and his brothers were beat. He never had a chance. Just recently, this summer, my wrist was throbbing, and I got so mad, as I usually do, and and I'm went to his Facebook page. I haven't looked at anything from him for 10 years. I went to his Facebook page and I was going to message him and just tell him about himself because I was so mad. I was so mad that 10 years later, he's still hurting me. And when I got to his page, I scrolled for just a minute and then I was like, oh, yeah, his, his life is awful. And I actually survived and I have a wonderful life with a wonderful husband. We have two beautiful children. I got away from my hometown, I came out here to a space where I could be removed by time and distance and heal, and he'll probably never get better. So I didn't message him. It was a few months later that I saw the video of Brant Jean, and that's when I contacted Chuck and told him if he did anything on domestic violence that I would really like to speak. <laughs> and even though it scared me to death to do it, here I sit, and I felt like if I can help one person stay safe or even stay alive, this is worth it because it is much more comfortable for me to come sing than it is for me to sit here and talk. I'm going to tell you that right now. Big breaths. Okay. So I'm going to end on two uplifting stories about my life now. The first story is about my four-year-old son, and it's a situation where I didn't feel like I handled it 
the best way, but the resolution was absolutely amazing. And the last story is with my husband. And if I could handle every conflict uh, and, and use this situation as a benchmark, it would be amazing. Um, Stephen and I strive with much, confident, uh, with much conscious awareness and effort to communicate respectfully and effectively with each other and our children. And as most of you who are spouses and parents can imagine, it doesn't always work out that way. We try. You just keep trying. But it's always the goal. And when we screw it up with each other or with our kids, we're staunch believers in holding accountability and expressing genuine heartfelt remorse for the infraction. And anyone who is a parent knows very well the traumas and the triggers and maybe even the PTSD of your own childhood or early adult experiences come out in your marriage and your child rearing. And, you know, and it can be very tricky navigating these potential minefields. My mantra that I mentioned when I spoke on addiction back in April was choose love. I took that from a child development book I was reading, trying to figure out how to better navigate my children's toddlerhoods. Choose love. So this was the first year we had our Christmas tree up, and we didn't have a toddler fence blocking it off from our precious little children. And it was tied to a wire, um, to the string, and my four-year-old kept spinning it. And I kept telling him, you're going to break the lights. The lights aren't going to work. We're not going to have lights on the Christmas tree. Well, one day a few, a few weeks ago, I was having a particularly hard day. It was close to nap time, and they'd been particularly uh, <laughs> testing my limits that morning. And I came downstairs, and the lights were out on the tree. And I went down to investigate, and I slightly turned it, and like sparks flew, and it was startling. And... And even though in that moment, I said, don't yell at your kids. Don't yell. I, I ended up yelling at my kids. I, I tried not to. I got triggered. And, and then I immediately felt awful. And I went upstairs. They were just, they were still just playing. And, and I went upstairs and I sat on my bed and I started to cry. And they came and found me. And my little girl was like, mommy, are you crying? And then here comes my son. And I said, yeah, but I'm, I'm okay. I just, I just got to get it out. Just go play. She's like, Mommy, why are you crying? And I said, well, because I yelled at you guys about the Christmas tree, and it just doesn't matter. And my son immediately came up and took my hands, and he goes, He <sighs> <laughs> <laughs> starts breathing with me, and I was just like, my tears stopped, and I was just so like shocked that he stepped up like a responsible little grown child or something and, and was trying to coach me through my moment. And I said, who taught you that? Did daddy teach you that? And he's like, no. And I said, did Esme and Roy teach you that? Which is a Sesame Street cartoon about emotional intelligence. He said, no, mommy taught me that. And in that moment, I'm upstairs crying, feeling like I failed to model emotional intelligence and regulation for my children. And he came up there and very sweetly proved me wrong. And it was really cool. So my last story, and whoo, I'm running short on time. Sorry, Chuck, wherever you're at. Um, real quickly about Stephen. So Stephen and I, uh, Stephen was a godsend in my life. He is amazing. Um, I have PTSD, and um, even though I'm sure it's frustrating at times, he helps me navigate it really well. And we don't fight very often. About three or four times a year, the pressure releases. I'm sure all you married couples know. You know, sometimes that just happens. And so we were having one of those a few months ago. And um, and it wasn't going anywhere. And I sat down to write out all the things he was doing that was making me mad so that I could organize it and I could present it to him. Like, like here, this is what you did. And, um, and he saw me writing and he just 
goes off to another room. And then I sat down, and then I took that deep breath. And I said to myself, choose love. And instead, I wrote the 10 things that I love most about him. And I walked into the other room, and I handed it. And as he started to open it up, assuming to read an essay of (laughs) deep descent, um, instead, uh, I walked away to let him read it. And then he came up to me after he was done, and he gave me a big hug. And, of course, the fight was over. And I said, put that in your drawer. And when you get frustrated with me, please read that. And I feel like if we could all just look at our own conflicts and the conflicts of others from a place of love and compassion and just remember, try to remember to choose love, we'll be all right. Thank you for listening. We're going to go back here. So Ashley, that was that was no. You got to stand up for a second here. So you got to see. I already got a text message. This woman is great. I want to meet her. Bless you. Really sweet. Thank you. Yeah. Well, Ashley, thank you so much. And she's gonna go. Ashley's gonna go get ready for her next song here. How much time do you need? You need a minute? Just a minute. And I'm gonna step back over here, folks. The power of that story. The power of when we share and we start to come to understand what is love. We understand what it isn't. And what it isn't is control. And we start to understand what it is. And can you see again, when we talked about that world that that Jesus wants us to inhabit, you you can just see the difference between the two. So much of life is in that sharing of those stories, imperfect as they are, that help us to understand more and more what is love and help us then in, in small ways to like breathe into it, to move into it as, as best we can out there into the world. Now, as the band comes out, they're going to do a beautiful middle song here that Ashley picked. It's a wonderful song. And then when we come back, What I'm going to do is I'm just going to offer a few little theological thoughts to kind of round out the message, none of which, of course, are more important than what Ashley shared. So let's be thinking. What is love? How can we really allow that definition into our lives? Not just as an intellectual thing, but as this, as the lived experience of again and again Choosing love. And and just to close on on a few things. I think, you know, in the Bible, there's this this word of yoking, you know, and it was an agrarian culture. And I want to talk about that word and and just give us some closing thoughts here. I'm going to step over to this carpet here for a second. There's, There's a first kind of yoke. There's a first kind of yoke. And that yoke is a yoke of control. For many in relation, the crisis in relationship is a crisis of control. And when marriages get challenged, when relationships get challenged, it's because one partner is trying to place the yoke of their control on another. And it's tough. I mean, how many control enthusiasts do we have out there in the audience today? 
You know, many of us are control enthusiasts. And, and we have to learn to, to, we struggle with that, and we have to learn a new way. In this beautiful passage here, this is a piece of, piece of new church theology that, that, that where Emmanuel Sturmer is saying, yeah, these are the marriages that struggle, where one partner is literally taking the yoke and putting it on the other partner. Putting on this, this thing that's, 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 that's confining and this thing that's very controlling. And a lot of that can come down to this next line, this next concept. That I don't want you to be happy without me. In a strange, counterintuitive way, the most functional loves that I know are loves where the partner just loves. With or without. Because they're so deeply dedicated to their partner's happiness. And it's one of those pieces that when two couples do that together, boy, is it beautiful. That's why marriage, as I often say, is never 50-50. It's always 100-100. Doing the best we can. Now, stepping back over here, there is this incredibly beautiful view of love as well, and this idea of a shared yoke, a yoke that is not placed on another, but is shared with another person. It comes to this beautiful line in the Bible from Matthew 19. A beautiful line talking about how all this works, how it comes together, how this yoking tends to pull, pull us together. I haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the created made the male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and will be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh, and they are no longer two but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. That word there, folks, for joined, that word there for joined together, an incredibly powerful word, and and that's the word yoked. It's the idea, hopefully we have a slide for it. So they're no longer two, therefore what God has joined, that joined word, let no one separate. And I think it's kind of this picture, this beautiful picture. Folks, the, the context of this beautiful line of scripture was a bunch of guys were arguing about divorce and, and, and Jesus was saying, look, no, you, you got to kind of keep it together because at that time, Again, we miss the history of this, and I've seen this passage totally misconstrued so many times. At this time, what could happen is a husband could just simply divorce his wife, just simply write a letter. It didn't work the other way around. It just worked. He could just divorce her. And when that happened, when a guy could just divorce a woman, she had no property rights. So literally, she was destitute, all on the whim of a male. And here Jesus is saying, no, no. No. What God has joined together, what God has yoked together, don't allow one man to change that. That idea of him simply saying, I mean, I think in our vernacular today, he would be saying, look, I need to share this with you. You're in it together. And all its imperfections, you're in it together. And of course, that's not to say that there aren't times where marriages have to, to, to go separate ways. I, you know, my, my parents, it's, it's a second marriage for my parents. And it's, they have a wonderful marriage. 
But it's how best do we keep coming back to, yes, we're committed to that we're in it together, this idea of the ox being yoked together. A silly little thing, and I've, I've shared this before, and it was, it was totally geeky, totally, totally geeky. But I, but I had, a, I was reading something and it said that, that, that two animals, you know, could pull, like two draft horses could pull 2,000 pounds apiece. You'd think they could, they could pull 4,000. Well, that's not true. Together, they can actually pull around 8,000 pounds because they learn to leverage off of each other, which is pretty incredible. And I would have thought that story was too good to be true. And then, of course, God and God's infinite sense of humor. Uh, I was at a wedding, seated down, seated down by, a, by a father of a bride, and he raises draft horses. And he's like, oh, yeah, it's how you teach them to work together. That's what enables them to do that. That's what we're trying, I think, in all our relationships to do, to move forward together. It's not about, again, that picture, that slide. It's not about moving together lockstep. It's not about each of you is exactly like the other one. It's about sharing a goal. Sharing something you're trying to move forward to in your relationship. What a great conversation to have as you go into this next decade. What's the real goal you want to share together, shoulder to shoulder, in those loving relationships that have meaning to you? And as we go about that movement, as we go about that sharing, I love this beautiful definition of love, a famous one out of the new church. And have you say the last J there? Feeling their joy as our own joy. Think how beautiful that is. So, so that means that if I'm being loving, if I'm working on what is love, I know it's not control, but great, what does love mean then? Well, well love doesn't just mean ooey-gooey feelings. They last, by the way, statistically 18 months from the point at which you're marrying. It's not just those warm butterflies. Those are nice. They're important for a certain stage and a certain age. But it's about a discipline around this idea that my partner has places where they find joy, that my partner has places where they come alive. And that doesn't matter whether you're single or divorced or happily married or unhappily married. Like Just coming at it from like, oh, those people in my life who I want to build relationships with, if I'm really going to be the loving person... I've got to like really look at it and try to figure out what is it that brings them joy? And how can I invest my life enough in that that I get to share that joy, that that joy comes back to me, not as in a possession, not as something I grab, but as something that like in this beautiful light and heat that is a beautiful marriage where I just get to sort of bask in the glow of that. I get to watch them come alive. I get to watch them return to themselves over and over again. I get to watch them have a sense of belonging. And I get to feel love the whole time. That's something worthy of our lives in this new year. That's something worthy of us to think of to exercise in this new year. Those relationships, 
where we really understand this yoking and this common purpose. We really understand this shoulder to shoulder. We really understand how deep and rich it can be, how we can discover the joy in our partner. We get to experience that in ourselves. Jesus said, come to bring you joy. And he doesn't say quarter joy. He doesn't say half joy. He says the fullness of joy. My dear, beloved friends, in 2020, may you know love and may you know the very fullness of joy. Amen. We're now going to take a minute and have a closing prayer. After the closing prayer, I'll just have a little bit of time just to take a breath, say your own silent prayer, the Lord's Prayer as you know it, or just to have a moment of quiet reflection. And I do want to invite you back for next week as we start kind of into the meat of our years. We really dive more deeply, as deep as we can, into this whole idea of belonging. Something I think that so much of humanity both wants and thirsts for, and that our world is so in need of. So please join me in a final prayer. So Lord, thank you for your presence here among us today. And Lord, please help us as much as we can to come more and more into understanding what love actually is. Help us, Lord, not just to to think through it in, in these light ways, but help us to really consider to put someone in our mind, even right now, who we want to draw closer to. Help us to consider, Lord, what what really brings them joy? How can we feed that? Not how do we stake out lines, but how do we feed that joy and that love? And in the process, return them them to themselves and us to who we truly are. Lord, and we ask your blessing in closing on this year and on this decade ahead. Let it be a year, pun totally intended, of 2020 vision, where we see more clearly the vision and the call. The vision of being more loving people, the call to be closer to you and to each other. Bless your ways, Lord. Thank you for the sense of belonging that we shared here today. In your name this Sunday we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. You can support this podcast at www.newchurchlive.tv. 